Hi, and welcome to another episode of Public Work, the public humanities podcast that Jim McGrath and Amelia Golcheski record from the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage. Um, so today's episode is one uh, in which uh, first year public humanities student Ruby Theodorajaran interviews John Cannonberg, who is the curator slash creator of the Museum of Portable Sound. Um, so this is a really interesting conversation about a project that um, We've talked about small museums before, but this is a really small museum. So specifically, this is a museum that exists only on one phone. It's not an app. It's not on the web, uh, but it's a collection of curated sounds that John has put together that he builds a museum experience around. So it's a really interesting conversation. Uh, two of the things that um, I wanted to, to sort of set up in that conversation and talk to Amelia a bit about, one was John goes into sort of the history of curating and, and recording and documenting sound and, and collecting it in different ways. And the, the two particular um, precursors for some of that are mixtapes uh, and sampling, the, the sampling practices. So, so on the front of mixtapes, Amelia, have you had much experience making mixtapes? Uh, not a mixtape, but a lot of mixed CDs. Okay, so, so for those of you like me who remember mixtapes, you now feel a thousand years old. Um, but uh, mixed CDs, also an experience that, that I've had too. Now Spotify playlists, a whole another ballgame there. Um, so what um, would you consider that maybe maybe not at the time, maybe at the time, but, but maybe now, would you have considered that kind of an act of curation or, or something that, that had connections to maybe museum practices you're more familiar with now? Um, yeah, I think so. And I think I, contrary to previous episodes of Public Work, where our good um, audience learned that I really like Inya, I like other types of music too, and I'm kind of a music snob. And so I create uh, mix CDs for my friends and I send them out like every month and you still do. Oh yeah. It's a big part of me. Yeah. I'm, I think in another world, I was a DJ for the, for the record, uh, Jim McGrath, co-host of public work has not received one of these mix CDs. Yet. Just you wait, just you wait. It's coming. <laughs> okay. Um, but I do think, um, the act of curating and thinking about who I'm making a CD for, really informs the music because I tend to listen to a lot of like softer songs by a friend who's a comedian in Chicago and she hates the music I like. She just wants to hear like zit, 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 beep, 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 Swedish rock. Uh, and oh, so... Okay, that, that's Swedish rock. <laughs> Interesting. All right. So to kind of curate to her taste, I've had to kind of expand. Uh, so in terms of audience, yeah. Cool. So what's a, I guess in thinking of curation, maybe in the context of learning about a new work or seeing an old work you may not have enjoyed or appreciated in a new more favorable light has there been a song or an artist that you've encountered in one of these mixtape contexts that you then said oh whoa i actually like this or a style of music yeah um i'll be honest with you when i was young i hated van morrison because my parents just listened to a lot of van morrison and then my best friend from college, she really liked Van Morrison. And so we've been out of college for five years now. And um, I was kind of creating a CD and I just heard 
um, this Van Morrison song, Caravan. And it just reminded me of like being in her car in college. And I was like, oh, wait, this is a really good song because now I have like really positive associations with it. And that really just kind of reopened Van Morrison for me over the last year. Cool. I, uh, I I keep the door closed on Van Morrison. Although I'm reading an interesting book by Ryan Walsh about uh, Van Morrison called Astral Weeks right now, named after the, the song. Um, I, you know, it's interesting, Amelia, you describe yourself as a music snob. I would describe myself as a music slob. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm just trash aesthetic all the way as as the billy joel conversations we've had previously on this podcast have have documented and and actually billy joel gets into so i had a it wasn't quite a mixtape but it was a this is how old i am i used to tape songs off the radio um and sometimes edit out the commercials for long car rides or camping trips so that i could listen to music on my little walkman while i was in the woods uh camping and doing other boy scout things i guess and you know cutting down trees or whatever we used to do. And I remember there was a a song called Angry Young Man that I really liked. And for years I thought it was Elvis Costello because of his associations with being an angry young man. But it turns out that's a Billy Joel song. Um, So I was secretly enjoying Billy Joel at a time in my life when I didn't enjoy Billy Joel. Um, And that's the power of maybe... It's more the power of lack of, of curation and, and kind of just, take, you know, taking something and bring it into a new context. Uh, we're keeping the story on the intro because I got to talk about Billy Joel again. But maybe we can move on to talking about uh, the other thing um, that we'll, we'll sort of preview here is, is um, Ruby and John have this really interesting conversation about the sounds of museum. Cool. And at one point, Ruby does talk about how she can kind of conjure up images uh or or sort of spaces in her her head when she has you know when she thinks of certain museums but the sound of museums is actually not something that's as easy to for for her to grasp and i i definitely agreed with that and they talk a bit about how you know for instance science museums are more noisy but in other museums you know you have this kind of reverential or expectations or or sometimes investments by the the um, organization to to having a sort of quiet reverential space um do you have any thoughts on sound in museums yeah i i agree when i think about what a museum sounds like it is quiet 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 um But then I think we have to train ourselves to listen really differently when we talk about like soundscapes or like sonic aspects of places, Um, because a museum's not quiet. It's very loud, right? Like you're constantly hearing feet shuffling or like bags rustling or folks chatting. And it's just we don't listen that closely and we don't value what some could call ambient sounds, but what others would think of as like a really beautiful soundscape. Yeah, I think, you know, so so you're going to love, well, I know you've already heard this episode, but, but Amelia, I think, it, um, is, is really in the ballpark with a lot of what this episode talks a bit about. I kind of, um, Silence Creeps Me Out, uh, this is the name of my memoir, I guess, uh, Silence Creeps Me Out, the Jim McGrath story, this is why I'm so loud. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, just thinking of sound and how sound really sort of helps build an experience and and contribute to an experience is is a really interesting dimension of what John and Ruby are talking all about. Uh, So you're going to learn more about the Museum of Portable Sound. If you have any questions, comments, inquiries, business inquiries, perhaps, um, you can email us at publicworkpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at publicworkpod, um, or you can just listen quietly and hopefully enjoy what you hear. Anything else, Amelia? That's it. Enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. 
Hi, I'm Vivithi Agarajan and I am a first year master's student at the Public Humanities Program here at the John Nicholas Brown Centre. Um, I'm very excited to be talking to John Cannonberg today. He's an artist and a curator based in London and we're going to be talking to him about his work on the Museum of Portable Sound as well as some of the other art projects that he's involved in. Thanks for talking to us today, John. No problem, thanks for asking me. To start with, could you tell us a little bit about your work with the Museum of Portable Sound? Like, how would you describe that project? Um, well, the Museum of Portable Sound is a museum that I created back in November of 2015. That's when it first officially opened. And it's, uh, it's actually the practice portion of my practice-based research for my, uh, my PhD that I'm working on right now. And it's a bit of a combination of a curatorial project and a performance art project. Um, my, the, the museum is a bit of a, a conceptual piece in and of itself, which is the, the Museum of Portable Sound is an institution that exists only on my mobile phone. Um, it's a it's a museum of sounds that can be listened to, but they're not distributed online, and there's no app involved. Uh, the only way that visitors can hear the content of the museum is by booking a visit with me, and we meet in person, one on one, and I give them my phone and a gallery guide, which is a printed book that I've created to go alongside the the audio files that are on the phone. And then we we sit for as long as they want to listen to the material on the phone. There's about five hours of material on the phone right now. And then we chat afterwards. Um, so it's, it's a project that combines thinking about sound uh, and sound studies, sound, sound as culture, rather. Um, and museum practice and thinking about what a museum can or can't be and um, questioning issues around the, um, the online distribution of sound and sound as a, as a digital object and sound as an object. Yeah, I'm definitely really, um, when I first heard about your project, I was surprised that you hadn't released it as an app and hearing you describe the process of meeting a visitor and having a conversation afterwards, like I completely understand why you would do that. It just seems like a way more personable visit to the museum. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not only that, it's um, one, of the, one of the primary reasons why I set the museum up this way is so that the, the visitor is, is sort of forced to set aside a time and place in order to listen attentively because close listening is, is really something rare uh, in contemporary culture right now. Normally when people listen to things like this podcast, um, <laughs> for example, they're probably doing something else while they're listening to it, either driving somewhere or, I don't know, doing their laundry or something. So what I, as a, as a sound artist, I'm interested in encouraging close listening to sound and thinking about sound um, very attentively. So that was that was one of the mo uh, main motivations for turning it into this sort of ridiculous, you know, 
situation of someone having to go out of their way to physically visit my phone because then it feels more like an event and a, and a visit to a quote-unquote real museum um, than just downloading an app and listening to it at home whenever someone would want to. Yeah, I that sounds really fantastic. Um, I like the idea that it's an event because we always think of like museums that focus on visual culture as an event because you have to physically go to them, but you're working with sound as an object. Um, can you talk a little bit about your collection? How do you go about looking for your sounds? Where did they come from? And how are you thinking about sound as an object? Um, well, just in general, the, um, the, the sort of concept of sound as an object seems to, to have started with the composer Pierre Schaeffer in the 1940s, the late 1940s. Um, he was a composer in France who coined this term, uh, sound object, and he used it as the basis for a new form of music that he called musique concrète, which is music that is created out of sounds recorded onto audio tape. And so this was basically the, the birth of sampling um, as, as we know it now. So he, what he described as, as a sound object was something that um, it required a certain mode of listening. Uh, it's, it's all, it's very, um, very convoluted and, and he used a lot of um, contemporary philosophy to try to back up this notion of, of sound being an object. And it's, it's an idea that's sort of hotly debated within the sound studies community. And depending on who you talk to, um, Schaefer's idea of sound as an object is either genius or completely ridiculous. <laughs> and um, sound, the thought of sound as an object is, is actually pretty much now, from what I've gathered, um, it's fairly uh, rejected by, by the sound studies uh, community for, for the most part. Um, but I definitely have to qualify that because there are some people who, who do adhere to it still. Um, so when I first started thinking about working with sound within a museum context, that was sort of influenced by my knowledge of what Schaefer had done. And I was, I'd started thinking about, um, well, if, if there's this term sound object that the sound studies world sort of despises, um, why not redefine it within museum practice? Because museums think of the things that they work with as objects. Everything is, they think in terms of, of objects, they do everything in terms of objects. So one, one of the things that I did was I wrote an article sort of redefining that term, sound object, as, uh, as a term within museum practice. And in, in thinking of, of sound as an object within uh, a curatorial situation, what, what I, the way I approach it basically is I'm, I'm trying to represent or I'm trying to collect sounds and display sounds the way that museums deal with physical objects. 
in in the same way. So there's the the idea of museological um, resonance, where um, museum museum studies people talk about resonant exhibitions and, and how objects resonate off of each other, and that's where multiple objects are displayed in a room and they their meaning sort of is influenced by and resonates off of e the other objects in the room as well as the visitor engaging with them and the greater culture outside of the museum as well. And that term, um, resonance within a museum context, really got me thinking about sounds as objects. Um, it just felt like such a nice poetic connection between the, the worlds of sound and the worlds of uh, physical objects. And so I started thinking about ways to present sounds uh, in combination with each other in ways that sort of use this, the same techniques that museums use to, uh, to sort of create situations for meaning making for a visitor by displaying specific sounds alongside of each other. So it's, it's turned out to be very similar to um, what used to be considered mixtape culture when people would make actual like physical cassettes back, back in the old days. Um, so it's, there's the objects that are on my phone are field recordings that I've made. Um, there's 200 of them right now. And the, the way that I've sort of categorized them and, and chosen to display them alongside of each other, I've, I've divided them up by categories that feel very sort of stereotypically museum-ish. Um, there's four main categories, sort of subject areas of the museum, which are natural history, uh, science and technology, space and architecture, and um, art and culture. And then within those four main categories, I've further defined what I refer to as galleries, which are on the phone, they're, ju they're just audio files within the music app. And each gallery is an album inside of the music app. So when you want to visit, say, the gallery of um, plumbing, heating, and cooling, which for some strange reason is one of the most popular <laughs> galleries in the museum, um, you would just go to the the phone to the music app on the phone and choose that album and then the audio tracks within that album are the objects that are that are in that gallery and then in the gallery guide in the printed book there are object labels and photographs and each sound is also is also visually represented by its waveform so it's a a visual way for visitors to look at the sound while they're listening to it. And some people have, have commented that they, they actually follow along with the waveform visually as they're listening to see if they can find the corresponding peaks and valleys in, in the sound. It, it, that sort of helps people to think of it as, as a more tangible or, or object-like thing in a way. And that was probably really long. <laughs> no, it was really interesting. Sorry. 
No, I had no idea that you also worked with like photographs um, in addition to yeah. sound. Like, how have you negotiated that? Um, how do you pick the visuals to go with the sounds that you've curated? Uh, a lot of it is fairly literal. So, the a lot of the sounds that I collect are, are related to post-industrial culture. So it's things that I hear out in the world. Um, a lot of a lot of things are are machine related or technology related. And so, for example, one of the things, one of my favorite things to to collect whenever I go to a, a city is to find the um, the audio signals that are used at on, on streets to assist um, visually impaired people in crossing the street ah, okay. because it, just about every city has a, a different sound for those. So when I make a recording in in a location, I try as much as I can to take a corresponding photo of the source of the sound. So if I do have a photo of, of a source, I tend to include it in the gallery guide. And that was, that was actually something that I was sort of dragged kicking and screaming to, to start doing. Because when I first started the museum, I wanted it to be solely a, a sonic experience. And the, the, the first version of the museum had a very simplistic gallery guide that was almost entirely text-based. And um, when I was showing it to, to visitors, immediately the, the feedback I got was the objects that had a visual of some kind next to them uh, were more easily sort of understood or, or digested by the by the visitor and the the two biggest early bits of feedback I got on the project were more pictures and more sounds because the original version of the museum was only 30 minutes long and people wanted to be able to get sort of lost in it like in a in a big museum so I've over the it's been three years that I've been doing the project now and so I've kept adding more and more pounds to it to the point where I've got five hours worth now um, so it's the the visuals are basically there to help people help give people a, a little more instant connection to what they're listening to because it's because we are such a visually based culture. It's, it's very difficult to get people to just sit and listen, much less sit, listen and read. So uh, I learned very quickly that having a lot of pretty pictures in the book would, <laughs> would actually help people uh, pay attention to it. I'm curious about um, how visitors navigate your museum since it's not a physical building. And you now have five <laughs> hours of recording. Do people do you find that people end up taking the same path through your galleries or other galleries that, like you mentioned, your plumbing one is really popular? <laughs> um, do you find that, yeah, people gravitate towards certain ones in particular? Well, um, along with the with the gallery guidebook, I also give people a printed map of of the museum. So I've actually designed a visual map. Of the of the galleries, and 
essentially all all that the visual map is is uh, it's it's an infographic basically so the the sizes of the of the shapes that I, of the visual shapes that I've designed for each gallery space they're all relative to each other depending on how many objects are in each gallery so everything is sort of color coded there's like I said there's four main categories so there's four colors um, each each main category has its own color assigned to it and then each main category is also represented on the map as a floor of the museum so that um, that graphic that that image of, of a sort of a fake map of a fake physical space is one way that that people tend to orient themselves pretty quickly another way is um, I've also created a series of guided tours, which are essentially just playlists on the phone. And those are also notated within the gallery guide. So you can follow along with a playlist, just play the playlist. And as you page through the book, there are icons on the objects from each playlist or uh, guided tour. So you can just listen to it in order and page through the book and find the corresponding information to it. So some people like to, to take a guided tour because they're just completely overwhelmed when they sit down with it and, and don't know where to start. But the vast majority of people just sort of take a minute or two to look through the map and look through the book and um, they'll something will just sort of pique their curiosity and they'll start there and then they just start wandering around. So. On, on the actual phone, um, the only the only sound files that are on that phone are related to the museum. So it's fairly simple for them to go through the the uh, the library of sounds on on the phone and just bounce around from album to album, to album and and find things. It, I I spend about five minutes at the beginning of each visit giving people sort of a an orienteering method and show them how to how to go through the museum and it seems to work out pretty pretty easily um pretty well um very rarely do people actually get lost they they wind up just sort of seeking out the things that interest them if they're not on a guided tour when you meet people to do the um to do a museum visit is it always in a, the same space? Like, is it a controlled space that isn't a lot of uh, visual distraction, or is it up to the visitor to choose where they want to have the meeting? Um, I try to leave it up to the visitor. Usually what happens is, the, the way people book visits is they go to the website, which is museumofportablesound.com, and all over the website there are links to con a contact form. and. People just fill out the contact form and say they're interested in visiting. Um, and then I get in touch with them over email and we just arrange a time and place to, to meet. And I try to keep it up to them. Um, when I first started the project, it was, it was when I first moved to London. So I also kind of used this as, a, as an excuse to have people show me around London. Um, because I wasn't familiar with everything. So I would ask people, where, where do you think would be a good place to meet? And they would suggest something. And over time, I've sort of developed a, 
a few different places that I that I tend to set up visits if if people don't have an idea of where they'd like to visit. So I do a lot of visits at the um, in the cafe at the British Library or the cafe at the British Museum, the cafe at the V&A, um, and other other places are are just sort of other cafes or even pubs. Um, or sometimes I've, I've done visits outside in parks and things, depending on the weather. Um, so it's, it's never really, there's no, there's no real control to the situation. Usually I, things are, are very much left up to chance and it's, it's kind of, uh, it, it's, it's more like just a, a very informal meeting. It's, it's essentially a stranger and I get together for coffee. They listen to my phone and then we chat. Um, and that I, I, I didn't, I didn't specifically design it that way. When I first got the idea for the museum, I really wasn't sure how it would work. Um, but eventually it just sort of, uh, this process of, of setting up, meetings just sort of created itself and it's it's been working now for a couple of years so you know, it, it seems to work out pretty well but it, it usually depends a lot on what type of headphones that people bring because i do in, encourage all visitors to bring their own headphones for health and safety reasons um, and some people just bring earbuds like regular earbuds and other people bring serious you know over the over the ear giant headphones and and depending on how noisy the place is um and the type of headphones a person's brought their experience will vary but a lot of people seem to be able to focus in on the, the sounds on the, on the museum fairly easily it's it really surprises me sometimes that that people are able to focus because a lot of times while I'm sitting with them, I can't focus, <laughs> depending on where we are, because it might be extremely loud. So, um, but I, the feedback I've I've gotten from most people are that it's it's fairly easy for them to sort of block things out and focus on listening to the sounds, and also that that sort of other distraction around us helps them feel like they've. Some people say that it, that it does help them feel a little more like they're actually in a museum because when you're in a museum, you very rarely get to have a one-on-one -on -one experience with the objects and you're usually jostling around other people. And, um, so the, that amount of distraction seems to actually kind of help in a way to, to sort of sell the idea that listening to my phone is actually visiting a museum. Oh, that's really interesting. I was, uh, yeah, it was surprising to me when you said that you had a lot of your meetings in cafes because they seem like difficult places to listen um, carefully to things. But that's really right. fascinating. Um, you mentioned that a lot of the cafes that you meet at are also in museums. Mm -hmm. Do you find that your visitors will do that before or after going to a more traditional visual-oriented museum? Um usually not no um i think i think usually what what people do if if i if we do 
agree to go to a museum, usually it's either because the person works in that museum, because I've, I've had a lot of interest from um, actual museum workers here in London about uh, who want to come listen to the museum, or it's, it's just a convenient location between myself and, and the visitor. And they will come specifically just to visit my museum. And then if they have time, they might go to the rest of the museum. But a lot of times it's, it's just, they just come meet me at a museum's cafe and then leave. It's, it's really bizarre. <laughs> it's also really interesting that you mentioned a lot of museum professionals are especially interested in your work. Do you find that they make up a huge like proportion of your visitorship? Um, I don't know if it's huge. I mean, I, there, there are, there are some, uh, people working in several museums in London who are interested in, in the idea of displaying sound in museums. That's sort of, um, in the, in the museum, uh, practice zeitgeist at the moment here. So, um, I've had interest from staff at the Science Museum and the V&A um, and yeah, one person at the, at the British Museum as well. And I, I think it's, I think it depends on who, um, like which, which museum and what types of people I, I just sort of stumble across here as well. Cause I, I also run uh, a class, I teach a class, the, the Museum of Portable Sound has an education department, and I teach a class called Listening to Museums, where I take groups of people to museums here in London and we do listening exercises and, and I give them readings beforehand and we, um, we do some very specific listening exercises and then we do other, um, other exercises related to museum practice. And so it's sort of connecting the worlds of, uh, of sort of close listening or deep listening and uh, museum exhibition studies. So through that, I've, I've also had interest from staff in museums in, in other parts of the UK, actually. Um, one curator at the, uh, at the Science and Media Museum in, in Bradford, here in the UK, came down for my for the first series of classes that I taught, and she ended up inviting me to um, present at a conference there. And so it's it's um, like just about any uh, any academic discipline. It's it's like bumping into people and and finding out that people are interested in your work and. Um, the, because there are some museum practitioners here who are very specifically working on projects related to sound, luckily I've been able to find out about a lot of them and, and get in contact with them. So that's worked out really well. I was actually just going to ask you about your listening classes. Um, where did the idea to do that in bigger physical museums come about from? Well, I've been working on... Um, putting together ideas for leading sound walks in, in museums and because I 
for for many years before I started the Museum of Portable Sound, I I've been doing my own sort of personal sound walks of, of museums and making field recordings inside museums. So there's um in the Museum of Portable Sound, there's a gallery of museum sounds. And another side project that I have is I make sound maps of, of specific museums, and those are sort of long, uh, like hour long, uh, about an hour long uh, compositions that are that are made up from field recordings that I make of one specific museum. So um, I've made sound maps of the um, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, the Art Institute of Chicago, um, Tate Modern. Uh, the Enlightenment Galleries at the British Museum, and I've I've got a few others in the works as well, and so I've I've got this sort of years long practice of of listening to museums on my own, and so that that was that seemed kind of uh, an easy way to transition into sort of introducing what I do as a as an art practice, and in listening to the soundscapes of museums to other people who might be interested in it. So um, I, I essentially just got the idea for the class and, and put together a few readings and talked to some friends of mine, and they thought it was a good idea. So I tried, uh, I tr I tried advertising the class, and, and amazingly, the group of people signed up for it. So, uh, and, it, and the first the first year went really well. I did it uh, for the first time last year, and I'm right in the middle of doing this year's session. Um, the next session is this coming Saturday, actually. Oh, okay, that's really interesting. What kind of museums do you take people around in? Um, well, Saturday we're going to Tate Modern, um, which I've, I've done both times. Uh, the first session this year, we went to the Natural History Museum, and last year I took people to the British Museum and the V&A and the Science Museum. Uh, and they're all big museums which have their pluses and minuses. Um, a big plus is that they're, all the big museums here are free and open to the public, so we can just walk in and do whatever we want to, essentially, in terms of uh, teaching a, a class like this there. Um, but I would like to try to to hold classes like this in smaller museums as well, uh, just because I, I I think there are, there are a lot of interesting similarities and differences between the sounds in in large museums versus small museums, and, and I'd really like to explore that further in the class. But um, so far, it's it's just been logistically easier to use the big museums. I have to admit, I when you mentioned these museum names, like I have an idea of what the collections look like, and I know what the visual identity of each museum is, but I I can't really think about how their soundscapes would differ. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what do you find a museum soundscape tends to sound like? Oh, um, well, they 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 can be radically different, even though I mean, it, that probably sounds ridiculous, but. Um, some of it has to do with geography, just where you are. Um, other uh, other things that impact the uh, soundscape of a museum is, is actually the subject matter of the museum itself. Like, if you go to the British Museum, 
and spend time in, say, the Egyptian gallery versus going to the Science Museum here in London and going to the new mathematics gallery there. Um, they sound radically different. Um, science museums in general tend to be very, very noisy compared to other types of museums. Um, not only because their audiences tend to skew to a very, um, very much younger age, but also science museums tend to have a lot more interactive things on display that generate their own sounds. Science museums are actually really, uh, they, they seem to be very far ahead of the game in terms of trying to design their soundscapes. Um, even though they're not really, no one, no one seems to really actively be thinking about it. They, they make stuff, they, they exhibit stuff that makes sound, but they still seem to have a hard time designing it to, to work well, sonically. Um, so it's, that's one of the things that I've, that I've learned that a lot of um, museum professionals here in the UK are, are, they're starting to get interested in trying to make their, their museums sound better or do things with sound in, in their museums um, to sort of actively take control of the way their museum sounds rather than just letting it be whatever it is. Because it, it, for so long, everyone's thought that museums are silent places, so no one's really paid attention. And now suddenly, with sound studies becoming this uh, sort of emerging hip uh, area of, of research, more and more people are finally starting to think about the way these places sound. So it, a lot of it has to do with, with subject matter and, and audience and architecture. And there's, it's, it, they, they sound much more interesting than I think that I think most people would would tend to imagine. I'm definitely going to listen more carefully to museums the next time I go. <laughs> yeah, I I only like I zero in on people's conversations about the art and stuff. But I never really think about all of the ambient noises around it. Um yeah. You're right, like people do think of museums as silent places. Yeah. Um could I just ask what projects you're currently working on like you mentioned you're teaching the class. Like, what does the future of the Museum of Portable Sound look like? Um, do you have like an end date for this project, or are you looking to make it a lot bigger? Um, well, my PhD is hopefully uh, coming to an end this year. Um, I'm I'm supposed to have my my Viva uh, in the autumn this year, so. But I, I definitely don't want the museum to stop when my when my PhD is finished. Um, I, in terms of recent projects with with the museum, um, we we just released uh, sort of a new product in a way, um, and it's something that I that I had as an idea for a long time when I first started the museum, but I. I never had the chance to really put it together until just recently. And I don't even fully know why I wanted to make it or what it's for, but um, I've just started, uh, 
I've just started producing these things that, that I'm calling uh, a deck of portable sound cards. And what they are is uh, a deck of 50 cards that have items from the museum's permanent collection on it. So each, each card has a waveform of one of those sounds in the permanent collection, and then just a short statement or description of, of that sound, um, along with the, the name and provenance and duration. And I, I just, I, part of it was I wanted to, I, I'm very interested in, in ways that I can make sounds feel like objects. And so that was one of the, one of the first ideas that popped into my head was making a deck of cards of, of sounds. And I still don't really know what to use them for, but uh, it's something that a number of people have have found uh, exciting and um, have wanted to get their own copy of. And so I, I'm I'm really interested in seeing how other people can come up with ideas for how to use these things as possibly educational tools or something to use in a in a listening workshop, um, or maybe even make their own versions of it. So that's. Along with um, more publishing projects, that's that's the kind of thing that I'm I'm interested in doing is is creating objects related to sound that um, help us conceive of sounds as as objects. But in terms of other projects for the for the museum, I'm I'm hoping to add another class to the education department, um, at, which would sort of take one aspect of the listening to museums class and, and expand it out to an entire course on its own, which would be um, a course on fundamentals of drawing and listening practices within museums. So it would be a combination of drawing, uh, of visual drawing and sonic drawing. So it would be drawing the sounds that are heard within museums, which is something that I, I do in my art practice. And I, um, I'm interested in sort of seeing how other people react to that to that practice in a classroom situation. Um, and then there there are a few other ideas of of possibly opening up other branches of the museum in uh, in other cities, which uh, is still very early. Um, it's very early stages on that, so I I don't want to sell more than than I'm actually going to be able to do, but that's one idea that I have that hopefully will be uh, coming up down the road. Wow, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate, but it all <laughs> sounds really exciting, and I'm really glad that you managed to take time of your schedule to talk to us about your work. No problem. Thank you so much for inviting me. No, thank you so much for sharing with us.